It seems like he was just a regular guy that wanted to make it. He was getting up there, but he still didn't have that big, you know, Oscar type role yet. And Johnny actually never got to have that because on September 26, 2012, Johnny Lewis murdered a woman. Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I'm super, super excited that you guys are here listening to episode 20. 20 episodes, you guys, that is absolutely crazy. Thank you so much for the support and the love that you guys have shown this podcast. It literally means the world to me. So today we're gonna be talking about a case that surprised me. The person that committed this crime used to be a completely non-violent person. They were a beloved TV and movie star. You know, I was a huge fan of one of the shows this actor was on and I had no idea that any of this had even happened. So when I learned about what he had done, I was just so shocked. We're going to be talking about what happened to actor Johnny Lewis and how he murdered a woman named Katherine Davis and her cat. This is a man who everyone describes as a kind and caring person. He was into poetry and into philosophy and then one day something changed. He just killed this woman and her cat in such a brutal way. I was able to get most of this information from interviews, police reports, and news articles specifically from Bill Jensen's LA Magazine report called The Secret Life of Johnny Lewis. He did a great job breaking down what happened, so I will link his article under my YouTube video. I do just want to put a trigger warning because what we're going to be talking about today is graphic. There's so much information to go over, so let's jump right in and let's talk about what happened to Johnny Lewis and Katherine Davis. Johnny Lewis was born on October 29th, 1983 in Los Angeles. He grew up in the North Hollywood and Sherman Oaks area with his parents, Michael and Devona. He also had an older and younger sibling, so he was the middle child. His family was Jewish oriented, but both of Johnny's parents were actually practicing Scientologists and so was Johnny. Michael and Devona were at the highest level of Scientology called Operating Thetan Level 7. By age six, Johnny started going to auditions and he booked his first ever commercial at seven which was a big part in an escalator safety video featuring a rapping cartoon raccoon. He also worked in many commercials after that, including one for Pizza Hut. And since his family was so involved in Scientology, Johnny was given the opportunity to act in Scientology training videos. So for some time, Johnny would do these small commercials and training videos to gain more experience in the acting world. And when he was 18 years old, he moved out of his family's home in the Valley and started living on his own with other fellow actors in Hollywood. One of Johnny's friends, director Doug Usher, called it the frat row of young Hollywood. Johnny had lived there alongside future stars like Adam Brody, Brett Harrison, and Ashley Simpson. Johnny was on his own and he was fully committed to pursuing a career as an actor. But even though Johnny was kind of just like any other young Hollywood actor trying to make it, he did stand out from the crowd. He just preferred poems to partying. His friend Jonathan Tucker said that that's what made Johnny special. You know, he wasn't into drugs, he wasn't into alcohol, just poetry and philosophy. He would rather drink tea and play chess until three in the morning than do shots at a party. John's career really started to pick up in his late teens when he had guest roles in The Guardian and in Malcolm in the Middle. He also starred in the show Quintuplets and was in the movie Raise Your Voice with Hilary Duff in 2004. That movie is literally everything. That's when I first discovered who Johnny was and that's just like one of my go-to comfort movies. After that, he had a guest role in Drake and Josh on Nickelodeon. He played one of Drake's friends and band members 
members. His episodes were pretty funny. In one of the episodes, he plays a guy named Scotty who gets tickets to a concert for him, Drake, and the rest of their band. Well, when they go to the concert, they actually get arrested because the tickets were fake. Scotty tries to reiterate that the tickets aren't fake because he photocopied them himself. Drake yells at him and is like, huh, you can't photocopy tickets. And Scotty says, yeah, you can. You just put them under the glass thing. You close the litty thing and then you press copy. So it was just a really funny episode and Johnny did so well in that role. Besides doing Drake and Josh, he was also on the OC and in Smallville. So as you can see, he was doing pretty well in Hollywood. You know, these were very popular shows at the time and just landing small roles in them was a big deal. It was just one step closer to eventually landing on bigger and bigger roles. In 2004, Johnny spoke out in support of Scientology's substance abuse and treatment group called Narconon and said that his mom actually used Narconon materials to help him avoid drugs. So even though he was booking these big roles and getting noticed in Hollywood, he stayed true to his Scientology teachings. Johnny had actually reached what is known as the, quote, clear stage around the age of 16, but he still had three more levels after that. Now, as for Johnny's dating life, in 2005, Johnny started dating Katy Perry, but their relationship ended in 2006. Apparently, Katy's songs, The One That Got Away and Circle in the Drain were inspired by her relationship with Johnny. During this time, Johnny had moved out of the frat row in Hollywood and he moved into a mansion called the Writer's Villa, a luxury estate in Los Feliz Hills owned by Catherine Davis and Johnny's room was on the second floor of the two-story building and his room was known as the Red Room. Now, let's talk about the owner of this villa. Catherine Davis. Catherine was 81 years old, but she was still very vibrant and everyone called her Miss Kathy. And she just had such a great relationship with her tenants. People said that she had a sparkling wit and she was just very kind and caring. In 1950, she moved to LA because she was going to school at UCLA. After going to school, she worked in publishing and then she married a man named James Davis. In 1958, she had a daughter. So Catherine and her husband James purchased what would be known as the writer's villa together but in the 1980s they actually got a divorce so after this Catherine was you know trying to figure out how she was going to have money and that's when she decided to start renting out temporary rooms in her villa for artists that were in between housing the rent was between $1,650 and $3,000 depending on the room and this was for a one bedroom with like a little sitting area in your room and then a private bathroom so it was definitely for a bit more successful or at least established artists because those prices were in the early 2000s and they were pretty high so imagine how much those rooms would be now now people heard about this place mainly through word of mouth so it was a lot of friends or friends of friends that lived in this building it had also been home to actors such as taylor negron chris parnell and george clooney had even attended some parties at this mansion back in the day now all the rooms did come furnished and it was also a bed and breakfast so it was just really convenient for everyone and Catherine was known for her homemade tamales there was a lot of communal areas in the house including a living room, a really large patio, and manicured grounds, as well as a shared kitchen. This mansion was just absolutely beautiful, and it was filled with, you know, ambitious people that just wanted to make it in Hollywood. Catherine really looked out for her tenants, and she was always there for them whenever they were sad about an audition or, you know, something like that. One of her past tenants, who is also an actor named Paula Poundstone, said that one time she was waiting for a cab to come pick her up to take her to the Burbank airport, but the cab never showed up. So Paula was kind of freaking out about this and she says that Catherine came over to her and tried to calm her down and, you know, told her, you know, hey, this is how you can get to the airport from here. But Paula was just really overwhelmed by this and Catherine could see this. So she kindly offered to drive Paula to the airport herself. 
which is such a kind thing to do. I mean, she's the owner of this building, so she really has no obligation to do this for her tenants, but that just shows how kind and caring she was. So going back to Johnny, he was living in this mansion and he told his friends that Catherine was just such a kind person and that he really liked living at the writer's villa. It was such a calm place and he just felt so at peace there. Going back to his acting career, in 2008, he landed a leading role in the very popular show Sons of Anarchy. This is definitely an interesting show. It's a fictional story about a motorcycle club called Sons of Anarchy and about all the legal and illegal things that they do to keep this club running. Johnny played a reoccurring character on the show called Half Sack and you know he was a new member to this motorcycle club so he was often teased and you know given these crazy tasks to do to prove his worth. His acting was really good on the show and I did watch all of their seasons. It's kind of a dark show but I don't know I really liked the acting in it and even though the characters were kind of crazy and like out there I really liked the storyline. So while doing the show Johnny actually started dating Dating Diane Gaeta, his co-star on the show. Now, Johnny was only on Sons of Anarchy for two seasons because at the end of the second season, he actually asked his writers if he could get out of the contract. He told the creator that he just wasn't happy on the show anymore. According to his father, he didn't like all of the violence that was on the show and, and he just didn't want to be a part of portraying that. He was thinking of quitting the show and then just finishing his first novel, which was about a young musical genius making his way in San Francisco. So he spoke to the creators about this and they were actually fine with Johnny's request to leave and they decided to kill Johnny's character off in the season two finale. After leaving the show in 2009, he found out that his girlfriend Diane was pregnant. Now this wasn't public information yet and they kept their relationship and Diane's pregnancy a secret. So over the next year, Johnny starred in the hit show Criminal Minds, and I have such a vivid memory of this episode. If you're a Criminal Minds fan, then I'm sure you know what episode I'm talking about. The episode is called Zoe's Reprise, and it's about a girl named Zoe who is studying criminology. She goes to a seminar hosted by Agent Rossi, who's one of the FBI agents Criminal Minds, and she tells him that she feels like there's a local serial killer, but that no one is believing her or taking her seriously. Agent Rossi tells her to not investigate this by her herself because he knows how curious criminology students can be, but despite what Agent Rossi says, Zoe goes back to one of the crime scenes to kind of gather her own research. And then there, she was killed by the killer. And the killer turned out to be a guy named Eric, who was played by Johnny Lewis. Johnny's character on the show was very eerie. He was kind of like a cocky serial killer. And I just have such a vivid memory of this episode because it really scared me when I first watched it. And Johnny's acting was just really good. So moving on from Criminal Minds, he also had a supporting role in The Runaways, which starred Dakota Fanning and Kristen Stewart. And he also had supporting roles in Magic Valley, Lovely Molly, and $186 to Freedom, which were smaller budget movies. Then in 2010, Diane gave birth to their daughter, Kala May, but unfortunately, Diane and Johnny's relationship wasn't going that well and they broke up. They tried to live together, the three of them in an apartment, but it was just too complicated and Johnny moved out. After that, a bitter custody battle over their daughter started between them. So around this time, Johnny also left Scientology. Johnny was trying to distance himself from the church because it was affecting his custody agreement with Kala. I know most of us don't really know what goes on in the Scientology church, but parents not involved in the church really don't like their kids to be involved with 
with it. For example, that's what caused Katie Holmes and Tom Cruise's divorce. So Diane was not supportive of Scientology and Johnny just wanted to distance himself so he could get more time with his daughter, Kala. And I feel like that really speaks to Johnny's character. You know, Scientology was such a big part of his life and it was something that he had been doing forever, but he was willing to give it up if that meant that he could spend more time with his daughter. You know, not only was he like, yeah, I won't expose my daughter to Scientology, but I'll also leave it too. It just really shows how much he cared about her. Okay, so that's kind of just like a summary of who Johnny Lewis was, how he grew up, and what his acting career consisted of. It seems like he was just a regular guy that wanted to make it. I mean, he was doing all of these small roles, and then he did Sons of Anarchy, and then he did Criminal Minds. So he was getting up there, but he still didn't have that big, you know, Oscar-type role yet. And Johnny actually never got to have that, because on September 26, 2012, Johnny Lewis murdered a woman. That morning at around 9, 10 in the morning, Johnny was pacing up and down the sidewalk corner in the Los Feliz neighborhood where he was currently staying at the writer's villa. And something just wasn't right. He looked really disheveled and sweaty. He was only wearing jeans and red shoes, so he was shirtless and his hair was a mess. He walked up to one of his neighbors named Daniel Blackburn, who was a 70-year-old man, and he introduced himself to his neighbor by saying, Hi, I'm John, your new neighbor. Now, Daniel says that he had already been watching Johnny, you know, just pace back and forth on the sidewalk for about 15 minutes, and he just felt really skeptical of him. I mean, again, he could just tell that something was wrong, but regardless, he said hi to Johnny. He said, nice to meet you with the raised eyebrow, after which the two kind of just like stared at each other for a while before Johnny just abruptly walked away. After that odd interaction, Daniel just went about his day and started his morning routine. However, just 30 minutes after this, Daniel heard his wife Gloria calling for him with panic in her voice. Daniel ran outside to find Johnny on top of a house painter who was working on the first floor deck of Dan's home and the house painter's face was covered in blood and Johnny was hitting him with a closed fist. This was so shocking for Daniel. I mean, this guy was just at his house 30 minutes earlier introducing himself and now he was attacking his house painter. So Daniel immediately rushed over to try to pull Johnny off this man, but that's when Johnny punched Daniel in the eye and Daniel fell to the ground. Remember, Daniel is 70 years old at this time. It's crazy to hit anyone, but to hit an older person and for no reason is not okay. Daniel says that Johnny's expression was just flat and blank and it looked like he was somewhere else entirely. So after getting pushed to the ground, Daniel manages to get back on his feet and that's when he threw a punch at Johnny. The punch landed but Johnny didn't even flinch at all. To Daniel, it just seemed like he had like superhuman strength or something. I mean, nothing was phasing him. So Daniel just kept punching Johnny. I mean, at this point, he didn't know what else to do because Johnny just kept attacking this house painter and he wouldn't leave. So he kept swinging at Johnny but he was hardly affected by any punch that he took and Daniel said that it was just like he was hitting him with a fly swatter like nothing was happening at this point Daniel didn't know what else to do so he actually went and he grabbed a chair then he hit Johnny with this chair and this did stun him just long enough so that Daniel his wife Gloria and the house painter could escape into the house they all ran inside the house and when Daniel tried to shut the front door Johnny actually stuck his arm inside through the opening I mean it literally looked like a scene from a horror movie you know when you're being chased by a bad guy and then you try to shut the door, but they stick their foot through it or they put their arm. I mean, it was just really, really scary for everyone. Daniel, Gloria, and the house painter were able to push their full weight onto the door and that's how they were able to shut it. 
They basically barricaded themselves inside the house and then they called 911. I can't even imagine how confused and panicked they must have been. Everything just happened so quickly and it just seemed so random. Johnny had no reason to attack this house painter. I mean, he was just out there doing his job, minding his own business. So while they're waiting for 911 to arrive, Daniel is like peeking out through the window just to see what Johnny is doing, you know, to check if he's still on the doorstep, waiting for them to open up or if he's doing something else. So he looks out the window and he sees Johnny leap over the waist high fence around the deck and then kind of like pounce on a wooden fence surrounding the writer's villa next door. I mean, Daniel says that it looked like Johnny was like Spider-Man. You know, that's how odd his movements were. After seeing Johnny hop over the fence, that was the last time that they saw him before police arrived at the scene and walked into a truly gruesome crime scene. Now, at this point, Daniel wasn't the only person who had called the authorities to report Johnny's behavior. They had actually received multiple calls from witnesses who reported a screaming woman and three men fighting, which had led them to Catherine Davis's house, also known as the Writer's Villa, at around 10.40 in the morning. Now, remember, Catherine Davis is the owner of the Writer's Villa and Again, everyone just described her as such an incredibly kind person that was always there for everyone. So authorities arrive at the property and that's when they see Johnny Lewis dead in the driveway. He was lying on the ground face up, his left eye socket was caved in and his skull was cracked open. His body was found approximately six feet away from a wall in the driveway. It was just such a gruesome and traumatic scene to walk into. Police weren't sure if he accidentally fell to his death from the second floor or from the roof while he was trying to flee from the crime scene or if he had taken his own life. So after finding Johnny's body, police enter the writer's villa and the main floor of the large home seemed totally fine, like nothing looked out of place. So they moved on to the second floor and that floor was a mess. All of the bedrooms had been ransacked and inside Johnny's bedroom, they found a bloody hammer. Authorities continued going through all of the rooms and when they arrived at Catherine Davis's room, they saw that there was blood everywhere. And then they found Catherine Davis dead. Once again, I'm gonna put a trigger warning because what I'm going to say next is graphic. Catherine was found beaten to death and strangled. Authorities also found Catherine's beloved cat, Jesse, in the bathroom. The cat had been dismembered, ripped to death by someone's bare hands. I mean, it was all just terrible, you know, starting from when Johnny attacked the house painter to him punching Daniel to him murdering Catherine and her cat. I mean, how did all of this happen and why? Why did Johnny Lewis do this? Now let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors today at Caraway. If you're like me and you call your mom for literally everything, you might be used to her taking care of things for you, like making your doctor's appointments. It's her way of showing you that she cares, but honestly, it's time you take your health seriously now that you're on your own. Thankfully, you've got Caraway. Caraway is the all-in-one app to get the health care that you need. Their app is super easy to use and offers physical, mental, and reproductive health care tailored to fit your needs. With Caraway, you get unlimited 24-7 access to an experienced care team of doctors, therapists, psychiatrists, gynecologists, nurses, and health advisors, and more. And you'll always talk to a real person, not a robot. Caraway can help manage all of your different healthcare concerns like getting medicine when you're sick, treating depression, or refilling birth control prescriptions. You can also message your care team to get quick answers to your questions, big or small, like why you have a headache that won't go away, or you know, if you need 
need to know if a mole looks normal or not. No more long wait times, surprise fees, or Googling your symptoms in a panic. Membership starts at less than $25 a month. That's less than your copay at Urgent Care, you guys. And all the care that you receive from Caraway is covered by your membership fee, including therapy sessions. And if you need labs, in-person care, or prescriptions, your care team can coordinate with your doctors outside of Caraway and even help you navigate insurance questions. Right now, Caraway is offering new members 30 days completely free if you go to caraway.health slash what happened. There's no credit card required to try it. Get free and unlimited access to chat with their care team for 30 days. That's C-A-R-A-W-A-Y dot health slash what happened for 30 days completely free. Caraway is available in select states, so go to caraway.health slash what happened to learn more. The bodies were sent to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy to be conducted. They determined that Johnny had immediately died upon impact, so as soon as he hit the ground, he was gone. His neck also showed some strangulation marks and he also had scratches, so it seemed like Catherine had tried her best to fight back. His death was ruled as accidental and not a suicide. As for Catherine, her autopsy revealed that she had been repeatedly beaten by a heavy blunt object which is assumed to be the bloody hammer that they had found. And her skull was fractured. The left side of her face had been obliterated, so her brain was actually exposed. There were also four small puncture wounds on her face that are believed to be from being stabbed with a mechanical pencil. And there were mechanical pencils found at the crime scene. In the end, her cause of death was determined to be blunt head trauma, and she also showed signs of manual strangulation. This just breaks my heart. I mean, by all accounts, Catherine was a wonderful person. She was so kind and inviting to everyone in her home, and she just didn't deserve this. Neither did her cat. I mean, to be stabbed with a mechanical pencil and for her cat to be murdered as well, it's just really terrible and just also really frightening. I mean, for one of your tenants to just turn on on you like that is scary. Now, after all of this happened, the news was already reporting about how actor Johnny Lewis had murdered a woman, killed her cat, and that this had happened because he was allegedly on bath salts or was taking a drug called Smiles. I'm not sure where they got this information from because Johnny's toxicology report wasn't revealed until two months after his death but news articles and reporters were already stating that he had killed her because of drugs. Well, when the toxicology report came back, it revealed that Johnny had no drugs or alcohol in his system at all. Even prescribed drugs that he was supposed to be taking were inside his system, so Johnny was 100% sober that day. So if Johnny wasn't on drugs and he wasn't drunk, how did this happen? Of course, I'm not saying that drugs or alcohol excuses this type of behavior or that it can even cause this type of behavior, but everyone was wondering, you know, if Johnny was 100% sober that day, how did this happen? Everyone was so shocked. I mean, Johnny left Sons of Anarchy because he didn't want to portray a violent character. And then just a few years later, he violently murdered someone. That seemed like quite a jump. And then of course, people were talking about Johnny's character that he played on Criminal Minds, who was a serial killer. Everyone started to think, oh, maybe he played that role a little too well, or maybe he wasn't acting like a serial killer. Maybe he was one. I mean, you guys know how TMZ and those tabloid magazines can be. They can be very unempathetic. So the fact that people were saying that he made his Criminal Minds character come true, I feel like it's just rude. You know, I get it. It is odd that he played a serial killer on a show and then he killed someone in real life. But I don't think that it should have been made into a joke. And I just feel like some magazines were turning it 
into a joke. Now, going back to the investigation, to this day, there really is no motive as for why Johnny did this, why he attacked the house painter, and why he murdered Catherine and her cat. Investigators wanted to look into his past just to see if maybe that could give them a clue, and they actually did find something that could possibly explain why this occurred. It turns out that on October 30th, 2011, just a year before he murdered Catherine, Johnny was in a high-speed motorcycle accident after he lost control of his motorcycle near 29 Palms, California, which is a city in San Bernardino County about two and a half hours away from Los Angeles. During this accident, he suffered a very bad head injury. He went to the hospital and they did do like a test to see if he had a concussion, but apparently the test came back negative. Although the only real way to know for sure is with an MRI, but the hospital didn't feel like it was necessary. So they just let him go. But in the days after the accident, Johnny's father, Michael, thought that his son was acting differently and that he was kind of erratic. So he pushed Johnny to go get an MRI just in case something was wrong. I mean, this scan would determine whether Johnny had a concussion or if his brain was bleeding or, you know, if any major trauma had happened. So Michael tried to schedule two different MRIs for Johnny, but in the end, Johnny actually refused to go and get the scan. It is shocking to me that the hospital wouldn't have forced him to go get an MRI in the moment, you know, when he was literally in the hospital for the accident. And even if Johnny only had a concussion, he could still have gotten the MRI because you need to take medication for that. And after you get a concussion, you're supposed to stay in bed and try your best to not think or you'll injure yourself even more. Not only did his dad realize that something was off about him, but his friends also noticed this. Johnny went to an acting class in December of 2011 and he kept speaking in a British accent, which friends in class found weird. I mean, why all of a sudden are you speaking with a British accent? They asked Johnny about this and he kind of just like shrugged them off. On January 3rd, 2012, Johnny was visiting his parents at their Northridge condo, which he had actually bought for them. And he was at the condo, you know, just hanging out with his family. He was wearing pajama pants and a shirt. And during this visit, he decided that he wanted to go for a walk. And when he was walking through the hallway, he said that he heard cries of distress coming from another unit. So he actually broke into that unit, but no one was actually in there because it was an unoccupied unit. Two security guards arrived and they asked Johnny to leave the unit and Johnny tried to attack them with an empty Perrier bottle. So a bit of a fight broke out and they ended up on the balcony of the unit. During this fight, Johnny was actually hit in the head about 17 times by the security guards. They detained him until police were able to arrive. So on top of the head injury that he had received from the motorcycle accident, he was also hit 17 times later. Johnny was arrested and charged with trespassing, burglary, and assault with a deadly weapon. He states that he was just trying to defend himself since these two security guards were attacking him. And after this, he was sent to Twin Towers Jail. Three days later, he was sent to a psychiatric ward because of his behavior. You know, this was considered suicidal. I guess while he was in jail, he was hitting his head against the wall which concerned everyone so he was put on a 5150 and he had to stay there for 72 hours for those that don't know 5150 is a number of the section of the welfare and institutions code which allows an adult who is experiencing a mental health crisis to be detained for a 72-hour psychiatric hospitalization when evaluated to be a danger to others or to himself or herself or gravely disabled after that michael was able to bail johnny out now johnny's discharge summary form said chief complaint blunt head trauma and suicidal officials expressed that he was very concerned for his well 
well-being of not only the community but of the defendant. Johnny suffered from mental health issues as well as chemical dependency and that Johnny would continue to be a threat to any community that he may reside in. So shouldn't someone like that not have the option of bail? I mean, I don't understand why he was released. So after he was released, he went to his parents' house in Northridge and Johnny just still wasn't doing okay at this point. He was very distressed and he had two black eyes. His sister said that he just didn't seem like himself. He wouldn't let anyone touch him or be near him and he acted very sensitive towards light and he would actually turn off all the lights in the condo. At one point, he even tried to turn off the lights from the fuse box. In the days after this, Johnny still wasn't doing well and he attempted to take his own life by cutting his wrist. So it seems like all of this behavior truly started after the accident. I just wonder why, you know, he didn't want to go get an MRI done or why he wasn't, you know, forced to. All of this behavior is just very odd and it doesn't seem like he was healthy, especially since he was sensitive to light at this time. And I don't know, I just wish someone would have forced him to go to the doctor, even though I know you can't force someone to do that, but still. So much was happening with him, but by the end of January, his family thought that he was actually doing better and that he would finally be able to go live on his own again. Because at this time, he was staying with his parents, but now that he had gotten better, he moved into his own place in Santa Monica. However, on February 10th, Johnny was arrested again. This time, he had hit a man outside of a frozen yogurt shop, and he hit this man so hard that the man was knocked out. A few days later, Johnny was let out on a $20,000 bond. Several days after that, he walked into an ocean fully clothed and he had to be hospitalized for hypothermia. On February 18th, he was arrested for a third time for attempting to break into a woman's apartment in Santa Monica. And he told police that he thought her apartment was his friend's apartment and again, he was released on bail. In May of 2012, Johnny had a court appearance and his friend, Jonathan Tucker, picked him up after the court appearance and he says that he was really worried about Johnny's behavior. You know, to him, he says that Johnny was a completely different person. I mean, he had a disturbed look on his face that he had only seen in veterans of war. He also said that Johnny was just kind of like all over the place. He was basically having incoherent conversations and Again, all of this started right after his 2011 accident. Johnny actually had been to a doctor and he was prescribed Zeprexa and Abilify, which are prescribed to people with bipolar disorders and schizophrenia. But Johnny was apparently not taking his medication and he would actually put the medicine into the cheek of his mouth to pretend that he was taking it. So even though he was prescribed these medications, he didn't actually have a clear diagnosis. And still at this point, Johnny hadn't even had an MRI. On May 23rd, 2012, after being in jail for two months, he was transferred to Ridgeview Ranch, which is a jail that has more like rehabilitation programs. So they have yoga, they have art therapy and meditation. It focuses on treating people with psychosis and substance abuse problems. Later on, on June 12, 2012, Johnny sent an email to his friend Jonathan saying, quote, The core of the story is that I was involved in a fight. My actions were self-defense, but my means were a glass bottle. After a few court dates, a stint in county jail, and the realization that there is no self-defense law in California, I am back on my feet and doing well. The court case is still ongoing, but from what we're hearing, it has every good chance of being dropped outright or disappearing with time served. 
On a side note, we are pleading for a rehab to avoid a trial. Addicted to marijuana, what a trip. So he wrote that letter to his friend, and then when the counselors at Ridgeview knew that he couldn't actually be addicted to marijuana, they then switched to say that he was addicted to alcohol. And apparently that was more well received. In a journal entry, Johnny wrote in July of 2012, he said, quote, felt more whole today, more complete, like parts of myself had been stolen in my sleep and scattered all over the world, and now they've begun to return. I'm more determined than ever now. I'll face what I am. I'll face what I was. So Johnny was looking to face real jail time for the condo assault, and his lawyer was trying to get a deal that Johnny would do a year at Ridgeview instead of real jail. But Johnny was so confident that his case would be dropped that he actually fired his lawyer, and he acted as his own attorney, which the judge actually allowed. And I don't know, I feel like someone on bipolar or schizophrenic medications I don't know if they should be allowed to do that, but I guess the judge thought that he was taking his medication and that it would be fine. Johnny thought he would only have a few more days in jail and then he would be free, but he was wrong. He was actually sentenced to a year in jail and was sent back to the Twin Towers. However, due to overcrowding, his sentence was actually reduced to just six weeks and he was released on September 21st, 2012. When he was released, he checked himself into the Los Feliz Hotel and then the next day, his dad took him shopping for new clothes. He actually asked his dad if there was a way that they could check if there was a room available at the writer's villa because remember, Johnny had lived there in the past and it was a really good environment for him. It was a really peaceful place and the owner of the building, Catherine, was just so kind and Michael thought that this was a good idea for his son and he supported it. Also, the fact that there was multiple people living in this house and there was a lot of communal space, he just felt like that was more secure, you know, that people would be there to keep an eye out for Johnny and, you know, keep him safe. So Michael called the writer's villa to ask them if they had a room for Johnny and he says that, you know, it didn't really occur to them to say that Johnny was having problems. He just thought that this was such a familiar place to Johnny and that they would show him love. So it seems like Michael didn't inform Catherine that Johnny had gone through all of these struggles and, you know, was having all of this erratic behavior. So he asked Catherine if she had a room and Catherine said yes, that there was a room for Johnny. She set everything up and then Johnny moved into the house the following Monday. So the day after Johnny moved in, Michael called him just to check in and Johnny answered the phone saying, I'm busy, what do you want? You know, just kind of like in a rushed and like annoyed tone. Michael said that they were able to talk for a bit and and Johnny calmed down and that was the last time that he spoke to his son. At this point, Johnny was still very sensitive to light and he actually had gone to the building's fuse box and had turned off all of the lights. And then just five days after all of this, five days after Johnny was released from jail and moved back into the writer's villa, he attacked the house painter and killed Catherine and her cat. It's all just really sad. I mean, my heart breaks for everyone involved, for Catherine's family, for the other members of the household that had to experience this terrible, terrible tragedy. And, you know, my heart also breaks for Johnny's family. It seems like his parents really loved him and they were trying to get him the help that he needed. His father, Michael, says that, you know, he doesn't want to believe all of the allegations about Johnny, about how he actually became his criminal minds character in real life and, you know, things like that. He says that his son was a peaceful person and that, quote, I keep expecting a phone call from him asking me to pick him up from the airport, that he's sorry for what he put us through and that it was all just an acting exercise to get him ready for some thriller movie where everyone thinks he's dead, but he really isn't. So I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine how the parents felt when they learned what Johnny had done and that he was dead. 
As to why Johnny attacked Catherine, it's speculated that maybe she reprimanded him because he tried to disable the fuse box. You know, maybe she confronted him and said, hey, don't do that. And Johnny got upset and started his attack. But the reasoning as to why Johnny did this is unknown. But okay, so that's pretty much a breakdown of what happened to Johnny leading up to the murder of Catherine and to his death. Again, everything seemed to stem from his brain injury. So let's talk about brain injuries because it's something that does come up on my podcast a couple of times now and how brain injuries can really change everything. Light sensitivity is caused by head trauma and it's a common side effect of concussion. So clearly, Johnny was still suffering from his head injuries that he had received from the motorcycle accident. Again, Michael said that he tried to get Johnny into a psychiatric treatment, but that Johnny always refused. So injuries like Johnny are called TB which stands for traumatic brain injury. TBI is an injury to the brain caused by external mechanical force such as a blow to the head during an assault, a fall, or a car crash. These injuries can lead to lacerations and bruising of the brain structures. There is also often internal bleeding and secondary hypoxia. Now these injuries can either be focal or they can spread to other areas of the brain if the white matter tracks are impacted. I know we often hear about the frontal lobe being damaged in cases like this because that's the part of your brain that has impulse control and this disorder compromises important neurological functions for self-regulation and social behavior and it increases a risk for behavioral disorder and psychiatric deaths which I believe means suicides. TBI has been linked to violent crimes and it's also been linked to reoffender cases. So there have been studies about TBI and suicide and it's proven to increase someone's risk of suicide and depression. Now there was no mention of Johnny being suicidal before this accident, but after he had the motorcycle accident, he did try to take his own life a couple of times. So to a lot of people, it seems like Johnny did have TBI. In Denmark, a study was done on links between TBI and schizophrenia, but none were found. Now, TBI can also cause poor memory, attention, and concentration, which might explain Johnny's interactions with his friends and his odd behavior. It also causes impulsiveness and poor social judgment. But frontal lobe TBI is linked more to aggressive and violent behavior, and there have been studies proving that. There's a ton of more studies, so I can link those under my YouTube video if you guys are interested. Now, currently, there is no way to know for certain if someone's TBI is the real cause of someone's violent behavior, and there's currently no way to completely treat it either, but scientists are working on it. Now, I did just want to bring up a man named Dave Durson, who was a professional football player, and in 2011, he actually took his own life by shooting himself in the chest. And the reason that he did that is because he wanted his brain to be able to be examined for damage that has been found on other football players. I mean, football players do often suffer a lot of head injuries. So he was obviously aware that something wasn't right in his brain and he just knew that there wasn't much that he could do about it. So, you know, in a way he sacrificed himself for science. I don't know if Johnny's brain would have been able to be studied or looked at at all since he died from hitting his head. So even though there are no cures, there are steps that can be taken that might help someone from not being violent after having TBI. They can go to neurorehabilitation, which is a doctor supervised program to try and help improve brain function and reduce symptoms. Making emergency departments or people around you aware of your TBI. I mean, this also could have helped Johnny so that he wouldn't have been punched in the head by the security guards when he broke into the condo because i'm sure you know getting hit in the head 17 times after already having a head injury from a motorcycle accident 
was not good and definitely did not help the situation. Another thing that can help is also seeing a mental health doctor. And you know, there also are programs in the justice system to have routine screenings for TBI and to have treatment plans put in place. In the UK court system, TBI is taken into account during sentencing for young people. So back to Johnny, it just really seems like all of his actions could have been influenced by his several head injuries. And looking back at it, it seems like he did show all of the signs. Hopefully more people can become aware of TBI so that cases like this don't have to happen again. It is really sad that Johnny couldn't find the right help for his condition and that it ultimately led to Catherine and his own death. Both Johnny and Catherine's deaths were mourned by members of the industry. Johnny's co-actors and the creators he worked with spoke out about how he was not the usual Hollywood type and that he was a sensitive and creative person. Some people also admitted to being scared and concerned about his recent change in behavior. The creator of Sons of Anarchy actually posted about Johnny's death and said, quote, It was a tragic end for an extremely talented guy who unfortunately had lost his way. I wish I could say that I was shocked by the events last night, but I was not. I am deeply sorry that an innocent life had to be thrown into his destructive path. And a lot of people felt weird about that comment, like the fact that he was saying, oh, I'm not shocked by this. People just felt like that was kind of like insensitive for him to say. And if he knew that Johnny was going down a bad path, why didn't he try to do more to help him? His ex-girlfriend, Katy Perry, was also devastated about his death. And a source said that they had good times and that it was just a really sad situation. She could never help him and she couldn't let herself go in that direction. Actress Shannon Woodward tweeted that Johnny was, quote, very, very, ill and that his actions were a despicable result of that. It was not who he was. As for the Church of Scientology, they scrubbed any mention of Johnny Lewis from their websites and their records. Even though he had worked on so many of their promotional and recruiting videos and his parents, like I said, had been high-level members. The church removed a photo of him speaking at a Narconon event and they claimed that he had not been involved with the church in years. In 2015, Johnny's parents, Michael and Devona, sued the administrator of Johnny's estate for more than $36,000. In the lawsuit filed in the Los Angeles Superior County Court, Michael and Devona Lewis claimed that they loaned Johnny more than $60,000 shortly before his death to cover various expenses, including his court and legal costs, SAG dues, bail bonds, and medical care. Now, Johnny's company, Hybro Punk Inc., agreed to pay the couple back according to the lawsuit. However, the suit claimed that so far they had only received a little over $23,000 back at the time. Now, as for Catherine, you know, the victim in the situation, she was lovingly remembered by the many struggling, you know, now successful actors, artists, and comedians who had once lived at the writer's villa. Actor Taylor Negron said that he was devastated and he called Catherine the most generous, thoughtful person to walk this earth and a saint. Catherine told Taylor that the room he rented was his room, always, and that her door would always be open for him. He fondly remembered the many dinners that Catherine had thrown at the writer's villa and the artistic and creative environment that she had fostered in her home. 
She was a very much creative person herself. You know, just before passing, Catherine was busy writing a biography of Phoebe Apperson Hearst, the mother of William Randolph Hearst. Now, Catherine was a Hollywood legend and a den mother to so many actors. She made sure to be a support system and make their lives easier so that they could be free to be artists. She was an important part of the Los Angeles culture and the actors who lived at her home say that they will keep telling their stories of her generous spirit and magical villa. Everything that happened is just really sad. I mean, Johnny seemed like a great person. You know, he was friendly to everyone and he just wanted to make it in Hollywood. I do believe that his head injury is possibly what caused all of this behavior and what caused him to murder Catherine. But of course, none of this is an excuse. You know, Catherine was a wonderful person and she did not deserve this nor did her cat. My thoughts and prayers go out to Catherine's family, to Johnny's family, and to everyone that was affected by this. I would love to know what you guys think about this. You know, if you guys are watching this on YouTube, make sure to leave me a comment down below so I can read it. And if there's ever any other cases that you would like me to cover, make sure to leave me a comment or send me a message on Instagram. This was definitely such a sad case, but thank you guys so much for being here and for taking the time to listen to today's episode. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review what happened wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to my youtube channel true crime jackie for full video episodes you can find me on instagram at the jackie flores and on tiktok at true crime jackie bye guys